Welcome back to the 92nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talk about nationalizing a lot of the banks in America, a global transformation of Christianity and what effects it will have here in the United States, and the first real challenge for the House Republicans And as I read this morning, Biden's probably not going to let it through. And we'll also end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So what are your thoughts on government-controlled industry? Are there circumstances where it is good or okay for the government to take control of an entire industry, basically nationalize it. Can the market still be competitive around the industrialized industry? Can the suppliers, the buyers, still have a fair chance at getting their products bought or sold at price or a price that's advantageous for them if the entire industry is controlled by the government? You know, more generally, is it good or is it a bad thing? You know, let me da- know what your thoughts are down in the comment section below. And the reason that's important is because, of course, our first article comes from the Common Dreams, and it's time to change the role of the banking game. So, if you've been paying attention, there, of course, has been much talk about nationalizing a lot of the banks, because at this point, they're already backing all the deposits, so why not just bring them underneath the government wing a little bit and make the rest of the banks also part of the government infrastructure that allows our economy to thrive, or at least that's part of the argument that you'll hear. Quote, Roger Altman, a former deputy treasury secretary in the Clinton administration, said that American banks were on the verge of being nationalized. What the authorities did over the weekend was absolutely profound. They guarantee the deposits of all of them at Silicon Valley Bank. What that really means is that they have guaranteed the entire deposit base of the U.S. financial system. The entire deposit base. Why? Because it can't guarantee all the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank and then the next day say to the depositors, at First Republic, sorry, yours aren't guaranteed. Of course they are. So this is a breathtaking step which effectively nationalizes or federalizes the deposit base of the United States financial system, end quote. So this is a crucial first step in actually nationalizing the banks is what the author is getting at here. If you are telling every single person, every single person that has a deposit in any bank across the United States, that your money is guaranteed. Like they said, it is the federalization, a nationalization of the deposit base. Now, no longer is it the full faith of the banks keeping those depositors whole, if anything were to happen. Now it's the U.S. government saying, no, no, we got you. At the end of the day, if anything goes wrong, we'll just give you your money back. It's stepping in and it's doing the point of the bank, which is to make sure depositors can get their money if something were to happen. And, you know, this may sound not half bad. Okay, it's safety. 
It's risk adverse. The government is going to protect my assets. But the question does come about, why is this necessary in this very instance? And a lot of people arguing that there's a flaw in the banking system that is really pushing the government to secure all these different depositors across the United States because, like I said, there's something broken. There is a root issue in the banking system, and the government has to step in and intervene in order to try to fix it. Quote, in the midst of the 2008 economic crisis, former Fed chair Alan Greenspan conceded that there was a flaw in his perception of the financial operating system. For 40 years, he had believed that banks could self-regulate responsibly, a presumption that had been proven to be flawed. The flaw to which SVB and other many other troubled banks have fallen victim in the age-old systematic problem of borrowing short and lend long. For centuries, the banks have borrowed the money of depositors who expect to have it available on demand and have invested in long-term assets that cannot be immediately liquidated. The system works well so long as the depositors don't panic and rush to pull their money out all at once. But when they do... If the problem is systematic, not just single banks, but the whole banking system can collapse, end quote. And this is another argument posited by people who would want to nationalize the banks that these banks can't cover every single person as they come to take out their money. They cannot, at the end of the day, have all of it available because they're lending it out to somebody else. The, as you've heard a million times, and I've heard it a billion times in business school, the bank doesn't just keep your money sitting there. It starts loaning it out to other people, trying to gain interest on those loans, trying to put it into some, if they're very large firms, put it into some venture capital, different types of assets in order to diversify. But normally, like the article says, a lot of these are not liquid, especially when they start buying mortgage-backed securities or just mortgage uh, debt, basically. When someone you know goes into foreclosure, banks can sell that to other banks. So there's a lot of these assets that they make the bank very rich on paper, but they're very hard to quantify and sell immediately if someone needs to get their money. And that's not a problem for the government, or at least that's what the nationalists will say, the people that want to nationalize the banks, I should be more specific there, they, at the end of the day, they say, well, yeah, no, the federal bank, so to speak, the Nationalized Bank of America, they can just give out money however they want. If it comes down to it and they can't actually have enough liquid assets in the moment, all they have to do is give the money out to the people. Because let's be clear, they don't actually have to have physical money. It's all electronic nowadays. So they can just electronically give the money to the people. And then at the end of the day, no one's going to notice the difference because in theory, they could just print more money in order to cover their shortcomings. And even if people did want to get physical money so they can actually move their money physically to a different bank or to buy gold or something like this, well, the Federal Reserve's coffers are absolutely huge. Now, does that mean that there aren't limits to how many different 
cash assets or hard assets they can have at a bank location? Of course that's true. So they might not be able to cover every single thing. But then people won't be as scared. They won't get as scared when they can't get their money out because it's the full faith of the federal government that, oh, well, only then when they collapse would I lose my money. So there's no reason for me to move it from one bank to another because at the end of the day it wouldn't really change anything if all the banks are nationalized as well. So you can see how they're building this narrative about nationalization being a good thing. And there are a few different options that they discuss throughout the process of this article. Quote, one option that was debated in 2008 and 2009 was actually nationalization. As Professor Michael Hudson wrote in February 2009, real nationalization occurs when governments act in the public interest to take over private property. Nationalizing the bank along these lines would mean that the government would supply the nation's credit needs. The Treasury would become the source of new money, replacing commercial bank credit. Presumably, this credit would be lent out for economically and socially productive purposes. So, there is more to the quote, but let's stop here. Socially productive purposes. So, what, what is that? What do you mean socially productive? Who determines what's socially productive? Does the current administration decide? Do the bureaucrats that work inside the bank decide what's socially productive? And for the most part, I've been laying out why they would want to do it, how it would happen. Now we really get down to my issues with it and also what you see the cracks start to form in their argument past a lot of the talk of why this is already happening and so on and so forth. So socially productive purposes. Like I said, who decides that? And like I said, is it the government in power? The next, can the next government come in and change the guidelines? So this is going to become like any other regulatory agency that every four, eight years is flip-flopping back and forth, creating new rules, changing the business landscape. That's not healthy for the economy. We need stability. We need rules that are implemented flat across the board, across administrations. And of course, this is never true in government, and things always change. But when we're talking about the largest, what would be, if it was nationalized, the largest lender, the U.S. government, essentially, then we would need flat-out rules that can't be affected by either administration, which would then require bureaucrats or a council that is meant to be above the fray, and that's not political, which is never the case. So you can see how this goes awry, and it can cause tension in the economy because things are not stable. They're ever-evolving, depending on who's in office. Certain types of business practices may be more allowed, and they may give out more loans to different types of businesses during different administrations. So you can see how this is very problematic. And then it forces the issue of banking to become more political. Say the government, a certain administration, doesn't like fracking and they decide that they're going to limit the amount of loans that they're going to give to different fracking companies. And it's not based on whether or not these companies are risk-adverse, they can make money and profit and pay back the interest on the loan. No, it's just purely the administration doesn't like shale fracking production, and they don't want to hurt the environment, so they're not going to give out loans to those types of companies. And then... That causes a lull in the industry. Prices are going to go up like crazy because they can't get enough financial backing. 
And then another administration comes in and they say, oh, yeah, no, we'll give you plenty of loans to these shale companies, these shale fracking companies. And you see where the issue is here. That's not stable. That's a yo-yo effect. You're going back and forth and back and forth. And then you have four years of heavy investment from the company being able to get loans, being able to have a little bit of injection of liquidity, and then going back to not being able to do their jobs and get outside sources of money besides from investors. So that really raises concerns for me. And then also at the end of the day, with the U.S. government in control of the bank going forward, what is to stop them from giving personal loans to people that they don't like or saying that, oh, these people shouldn't be able to get a certain amount higher than this, let's say, $100,000 cap loan because we believe that their political beliefs are dangerous. We believe that they're trying to use these funds to incite violence or something of this effect. Nationalizing the banks, while it doesn't necessarily mean that all the banks are directly under the control of the government, it could just be the big banks that are brought under control of the government and then the small regional lenders are left to do as they do. But at the end of the day, it centralizes the economic power that a lot of people need in order to operate their business or to start a business or to prosper here in America. And if the government could, in theory, control who they're lending to, why they're lending, and these sort of practices, it will not be beneficial to the economy over time. There's a big difference from nationalizing a oil industry that is independent, that creates jobs, that creates vital, vital resources such as gasoline and other petroleum products and so on and so forth, and nationalizing the institution that allows the economy to exist as it does. And that's where this talk of nationalization scares me, and I think it's a little bit dangerous. But that's enough about the nationalization and being a fearmonger. Let's jump to our second story, a little bit more hopeful. The New York Times, the global transformation of Christianity is here. So let's talk about how the landscape is changing for Christianity. Quote, the face of Christianity is undergoing a fundamental transformation. Sam George, the director of the Global Diaspora Institute at Wheaton College, told me, quote, what is happening in America is just a part of a larger transformation because Christianity is now getting a new face. It's getting more black, brown, and yellow. The last century has seen a near-complete reversal of the global demographics of Christianity. Currently, the fastest-growing Christian communities are in the, quote, majority world, the term I use for non-Western countries that make up the rest of the world's population. Scott Sunquist notes that in 1900, about 80% of the world's Christians' population lived in the Western world, about 20% in the majority world. By 2000, nearly 37% lived in the Western world and almost two-thirds lived in the majority world, end quote. So you see this drastic demographic shift. Christianity is no longer just relegated to Europe and a little bit of the Western world. It's starting to move into the Eastern world, into Asia, into Africa. And 
you see this, and of course it, it does make a little bit of sense in that the European monarchs and the countries that were very involved in colonization, they were spreading their religion, sending missionaries out across the world, and there was a heavy influence in some regions of Asia, in Africa, in South America. So it, it does make sense that at least there would be a presence there of these religions. But it's very interesting to note how they've really taken hold and they've grown and grown and grown. And one of the theories, or not theories, because it's probably very well supportable or there's evidence out there, but one of the thoughts that occur to me is that when people draw these new borders in different countries around the world, they relegate different tribes or different communities that may have been together into possibly different countries. So no longer is that tribe identity so strong and we're trying to establish a new or they're trying to establish a new national identity in some of these countries. And in those situations, those people still yearn for tribal connection. Just like in Europe and America and all across the world, we are a people that need community. We had our tribes, our townships, and then as things have grown, they've become the nation. And very often people hold their national identity as very important. But a national identity, especially if you think about a country like America, it's absolutely massive in size and scale. So at the end of the day, people still need that smaller community that allows them to feel connected with people, allows them to interact with their neighbors, to feel like they're being beneficial. They're giving to, giving to people that are less fortunate. They're working hard within their community to improve it. And very often, Christian religious organizations were that foundation in America. And now you're starting to see that the same thing is happening in the rest of the world. And the author does bring up later that Africa, especially Nigeria, is one of the fastest-growing Christian countries in the world. And I think it's because, at the end of the day, there's that sense of community that everybody deep down yearns for, but is especially potent in a continent where everything was just divided up. And national identity, while trying to be formed, is not necessarily stuck yet or is not at the center of the life of the people that lived there, especially when the Europeans were coming in and they were invading. It was all about the tribe, the community, not necessarily the nation. And there's still the holdout from the people to say, yes, I am part of Nigeria. I'm part of uh, Liberia, but, but... I want to have a close connection with my community and interact with people that have similar values to me. And that's what Christianity offers. So let's talk about the, the change of the narrative, so to speak. How is this changing demographics, changing the way that people approach talking about Christianity? Quote, in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, Christianity is growing in historic denominations such as Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism, but the most explosive growth has been in indigenous independent Pentecostal churches. Sunquest argues that in addition to Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox churches, 
we ought to start talking about a new family of spiritual churches that have no historical ties to Western church traditions. These spiritual churches are largely not a result of colonial missions. In fact, the meteoric rise of Christianity in the majority world occurred only after the withdrawal of colonial powers when Christianity became more indigenized. In popular religious discourse in the West, we tend to associate Christianity with white Westerners and European influence. At this point, our assumptions about this need to change, end quote. And you saw this same trend in the American South, where they didn't necessarily stick to the strict teachings of the Methodists or the Calvinists or the Presbyterians. You had outgrowths of a mixing of communities for the Baptist churches. And this, of course, does make a little bit of sense, in my opinion. And it is something that needs to be taken to into account when talking about Christianity. Because... Religion always evolves. We can't deny the fact that over millions of years, we have had thousands of different deities and different lords and gods, and they've been transferred from culture to culture, and they mean something just a little bit different, but the themes are still the same in their story. So when spreading Christianity, it's the same natural evolution. The one core root here is that we all have the Bible. So we all have the text that you can look at and say, well, this is what the Lord has said. Now, maybe there are certain values in the community that they emphasize certain passages more, or they find maybe that Paul is a lot more influential in the story than John is. Or maybe they put a lot of emphasis on the Exodus story because they feel like an oppressed people. And maybe some put a little bit more on revelations because they feel that at the end of the day, they will be freed from this terrible situation they're in later on. So obviously where they emphasize and where people put their attention in the Bible can be different. And I'm not saying that this author actually says it is, but that would be my presumption that these different communities will focus on different themes more than the others. But at the end of the day, they all have that blank, not blank, they all have that reference book. They all have the ultimate word of the Lord and Jesus and his disciples across time. So that is, the author's trying to say, well, Christianity is evolving. And what I'm trying to point out is, yes, it is evolving. And of course, it should evolve because that is how religions get better, how reform is done to values that may be out of touch. But Christianity is very different than a lot of different religions, or at least previous religions, where that evolution happened by word of mouth and talking to people from different tribes and spreading your religious beliefs. Now, just like the Torah, just like the Quran, there are written texts that guide you on how to practice your religion. So while it is changing, it is still formalized to some degree because of that. So you may be asking, well, how is this going to affect the United States? And it's very interesting. The author tries to point out that at the end of the day, a lot of these Christians or minority groups that are coming to America that are Christian, they hold two different beliefs. On the one hand, they're more socially conservative. They don't necessarily believe in gay marriage. They believe marriage should be between a man and a woman, that they 
should have kids with one another if someone gets pregnant. So you see this understanding of a more socially conservative worldview. But you also see that a lot of these communities are also focusing on social justice. And they want to ensure that the population that they are now a part of, if they're a minority, is well represented within this democracy that we call home. So there's a, there's a tension there. And what the author tries to point out is that Republicans and Democrats are missing the mark. They're appealing to one side of the individual. They're appealing to one thought process, one value system in the, of the individual, rather than understanding that it's more complex than that. And there's multiple different aspects that this new population, these new Christians that are immigrating to America, really have and believe is valuable when they're deciding who they are going to put into office. And this is something that both parties are going to have to deal with moving forward. And I think it's very interesting how this demographic change of Christianity around the world will now affect one of the most historically Christian nations on the planet. All right, so let's jump to our last article. It will be a very quick one. This is from the Washington Examiner, House Republicans' First Big Legislative Test. So... There is a little bit of bias in this first quote, but it is important to set the stage. Quote, despite the lengthy battle Speaker Kevin McCarthy needed to take control of the chamber, House Republicans have already netted some impressive victories. They forced President Biden to issue his first veto to protect his costly and wrong-headed, see the bias, just outright, they can't just say what it is, they have to make sure that you know their opinion environmental, social, and governance regulations that will raise domestic energy prices and slash pensioners' income from retirement investments. House Republicans also shielded the District of Columbia from a woeful, woefully weak crime bill that would have encouraged violence and theft. Not even Biden can defend the D.C. Council's dangerous legislation. He was forced to flip-flop from supporting D.C.'s Democrats to siding with the common-sense, tough-on-crime policies of the Republican Party. So you can see, the author's trying to set up, they've had some victories. If you're a, social, if you're a conservative, they have had some victories that will really, really favor you and will kind of make the Democrats and the libs a little bit, a little bit angry at the end of the day. And they've put Biden in a corner. Well, H.R. 1 is meant to do the same thing. It's, as I mentioned, Biden's probably not going to support it. So they're trying to get this legislation in front of Biden in order to have him proclaim or veto it in order to proclaim that, oh, yeah, no, I don't actually stand for these things and get him on record with the American people. And that's one of the nice things about having a party in opposition in control in one of the chambers of the president because, sorry, in opposition of the president in one of the chambers of Congress, because now they can actually hold them liable. The president can talk big about, oh, I want these certain policies, I want this, that, and that, but if they're never forced to knock down certain policies, they are never forced to say, oh, I can't have this, I don't want this, I will not have this, and be held liable And now, if there are certain people who may find these issues very important, then they can look at Joe Biden's record and say, oh, wow, he didn't support that thing that I thought was integral to my job or is very important for us as a society, as a country, to do. 
So therefore, it's kind of keeping Joe Biden liable. So let's talk about H.R. 1. Quote, this week, the House takes up H.R. 1, the Low Energy Costs Act. This is something House Republicans urgently need to pass. The bill is full of smart policy changes, including a ban on states blocking interstate infrastructure projects, such as transmissions and pipelines, a $6 billion tax cut on natural gas production, and fairer revenue sharing between states and the federal government from energy produced on public lands. The bill cuts $27 billion in EPA slush funds that were part of Biden's Inflation-Causing Inflation Reduction Act and repeals Biden's bans on fracking and natural gas exports and imports. More importantly, the bill takes aim at the single biggest factor making U.S. infrastructure projects unnecessarily expensive, the 1970 National Environmental Policy Act. This lets environmental activists block any infrastructure project that is used even a dime of federal monies or requires the approval of even one federal agency. The average NEPA review of a federally funded project takes more than four and a half years and costs $4.2 million. Often projects such as the Keystone XL pipeline are delayed to death by NEPA lawsuits. And I think that this is important because at the end of the day, the bill will put a 120-day filing restriction on any NEPA lawsuit. So it doesn't outright say you can't file a lawsuit in order to stop these projects, but it's limiting them and saying, if you're going to say what your problem is, if you're going to issue a lawsuit, do it now. We're not going to go on for years and years and years and relitigate this. And this makes sure that the projects aren't subject to double jeopardy. And let's be clear, I understand that's a legal term that more applies to people, that you can't be prosecuted for the same crime twice. But the same thing should go for these projects as well. They shouldn't be able to be relitigated on the same or very similar grounds in order just to stall them from going forward and actually being enacted. So I think this is an interesting step forward. What I do find interesting is that states can't actually interfere with the federal pipelines or different projects that would you know, go between states. And of course, the government has the power to regulate interstate commerce, but also should they be able to force a state to take on a pipeline that they don't necessarily want to? And also then the question becomes, should a state be able to block an entire project just because they're not willing to participate in it? I think that raises some interesting questions that are going to be fleshed out after this legislation is passed or, you know, probably not passed. Because even if it gets to Biden, I don't think once he vetoes it, they'll have the votes necessary in the Senate in order to override his veto. But, you know, that's just a quick update on the first major legislation that they're putting up and the landscape and what's happening with it. Now let's jump to our daily delight the Animal Rescue Site. Cat joins dog duo for their daily walk. So every dog owner knows all about the neighborhood walks. You know, some owners dread it and others enjoy it. But, quote, one of the joys of having a dog is taking them for daily walks. It's a nice way to get outside and enjoy the fresh air while bonding with your pet. A woman named Hillary regularly enjoys walks with her two dogs, Emmy and Gunny. 
but she ended up having a third pet join in the other day in their walks, a cat named Oliver, end quote. You know, and it's honestly impressive. There's no leash. There's no anything. This guy just joins the pack, and he is going, going, going. And I don't normally see this with cats getting involved with dog walks, so I thought it was really interesting. Quote, Hillary said that Oliver just started to walk with them one day and never stopped. She said, I never knew where he came from, but he always finds us, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys walking or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below. Also down there, you can find the podcast links for Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, and the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. And on the Twitter, I post the link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so you can come directly to YouTube. And at all those other places, you can download the podcast so you can listen while you're driving or you're going on a long walk. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.